Well, as you can see, and as many of you have commented, I decided to wear my Dallas Cowboy-themed uh, sport coat two weeks in a row. Uh, somehow they managed to, to beat Tampa Bay last week, and I imagine they're going to need all the help they can get this uh, tonight as they take on the 49ers. Uh, but I decided to wear the same sport coat that I wore last week. And uh, I guess I do have to say, by the way, uh, how about them Cowboys? <laughs> but a uh, same sport coat as last week. And also we're taking a look at the same passage that we studied last week. This reminds me of the quote by the great Yankees catcher Yogi Berra who said, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> but uh, last week we took a look at John chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer here uh, in the Gospel of John. And I said last week as we concluded our message that we had just scratched the surface of this tremendous prayer. That last week we looked really at just the tip of the iceberg. And certainly while all scripture is inspired, all scripture is profitable for us, let's also be honest, there are some passages, it'd be a little challenging to preach two weeks in a row. <laughs> some of the genealogies or maybe the table of nations in the book of Genesis. I mean, you could preach it two weeks in a row, but it'd be a little challenging. But this passage, John chapter 17, it certainly deserves a second look, a more in-depth look than what we saw last week. Last week, I mentioned that many scholars have called John chapter 17 the, ho the holy of holies of the New Testament the Holy of Holies in the New Testament, as Jesus, our high priest, makes intercession to God the Father for himself, for his disciples, and also for all of us. And so this week, we're going to take a second look at John chapter 17. Last week, we looked at it through the eyes of a Bible expositor, and that's typically what I do week after week. I try to break apart a passage for you to help you understand and then make application into your life. So typically, we look at a passage through the lens of exposition, but today, I'm going to ask you to see this passage through the lens of a theologian. And what we're going to do is we're going to extract some of the key doctrines that are present here in John chapter 17, listed there on your outline. Salvation, illumination, redemption, preservation, sanctification, mission, and glorification. So grab your Bible and let's take a look at the first key doctrine we see here in John chapter 17, the doctrine of salvation. As, in, as I reread for you John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, what I want you to do, what I want you to take note of as we look at these verses again, is I want you to take note of the terms glory, glorify, glorified that we see in verses one through five. Let me read these verses for you. John chapter 17, verses one through five. John says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So to remind you of what we saw last week, the word that Jesus prays for himself here in these verses is that word glorify. The hour has come, the time has come for the Father to glorify the Son. And I want you to notice that we see that word glorify, that request that the Father glorify the Son in verses 1 and in verse 5. Uh, about a week and a half ago, as I was studying John chapter 17 in preparations for last week's sermon, I remembered that back in seminary in 2009, I took a class from Dr. Pentecost on the Upper Room Discourse. And only about a week and a half ago, I remembered that I had the audio recordings of that class. And so uh, I opened up on my computer a few of the audio files of the recording of Dr. Pentecost teaching through the Upper Room Discourse. And I listened to just a few snippets here and there, and this is one of the ones that I listened to. And uh, one of the things Dr. Pentecost developed out of these verses here is he argues that there in verse 1 when Jesus asks that the Father glorify him that prayer request was answered it was fulfilled at the resurrection but then Dr. Pentecost said the request in verse 5 for the Father to glorify the Son was answered was fulfilled at the ascension so the Glorify there in verse 1 is fulfilled, it's answered at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the second request to be glorified by the Father is fulfilled at the ascension of Jesus. And right there in the middle, in verses 2 and 3, we have Jesus' definition of eternal life, which we talked about last week. Eternal life means much more than just living forever, everyone's going to live forever, but eternal life is living forever in relationship with the holy God. Jesus says here, knowing you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But it's interesting here in Jesus' prayer, in this prayer, we see this request to be glorified, perhaps framed by his death and resurrection on the one hand and by the ascension on the other end. And right smack dab in the middle there is eternal life. And all of this, has to do with the doctrine of salvation, which is the first term I want to talk about. Now, a very simple definition of salvation is God's work of saving. God's work of saving. And if you were here when we went through the now approved doctrinal statement, I said then, but to remind you, salvation really has three distinct phases to it. You have justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is when God saved us in the past from the penalty of our sin. Sanctification is God's process of saving us, even in the here and now, from the very power of sin in our life. And glorification is the future aspect of our salvation where one day, Jesus, God, will save us from the very presence of sin. But let's talk first about justification, kind of that first phase or aspect 
to God's saving activity on our behalf, our salvation. Justification is a legal term. It's the act of God saving us by which he declares us to be righteous. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom imagery where uh, we are sinners. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. We have all sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. But because of what Jesus did, his death, resurrection, and ascension, God declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's really what the doctrine of justification is about. Now think back to the Dallas Cowboys the other night for just a minute. The Cowboys played a great game against Tampa Bay. Uh, Many elements of their game, uh, they were firing on all cylinders. It was amazing. But there was one aspect of the Cowboys game that was way off against Tampa Bay. And those of you who are laughing, apparently you watched the game, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, The field goal kicker, it was atrocious. Um, If you didn't watch the game, I feel bad for him, and I'm picking on him here this morning, but um, the Dallas Cowboys field goal kicker missed a now record four extra point attempts in a row. Four extra extra points, if you're not a football fan, extra points should be like a gimme, pretty much. Uh, But he somehow managed to miss four extra point kicks in a row. He missed the mark. But I want you to imagine, and at some point this analogy is going to fall apart, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment if the NFL declared that he didn't actually miss those field goal kicks or those extra point kicks, he actually made them right in the middle of the uprights. And not only that, but he made every single extra point and field goal of his entire career. He has a perfect record. I mean, this guy would be inducted immediately into the Hall of Fame, right? And again, this analogy will fall apart at a certain point, but that's to a certain extent what God has done for us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have missed every kick we have attempted. But God has declared us not only to be innocent, but perfectly righteous in his sight. Not because of anything we've done, but only because of the work of Christ. The second key doctrine I want us to see here in John chapter 17 is the doctrine of illumination. And as we read verses 6 through 8, I want you to take note of the word manifested, come to know, received, and truly understood. Notice John chapter 17, starting in verse 6, Jesus continues in his prayer. He says to God the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you for the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Again, take notice of the words in these verses manifested, come to know, received the words, truly understood. All of these words and phrases are related to the doctrine of illumination. Now, throughout the upper room discourse, as Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure, he's made a promise over and over again that although he is leaving, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to recall to their mind 
remind them of the things that Jesus has taught them. This ministry of the Holy Spirit of recalling to the minds of the disciples the thing Jesus has taught is all about this doctrine of illumination. Illumination really describes the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in which he works in both individual Christians and in the Christian community when the word of God is preached to assist us to help us, to aid us, to interpret, to understand, to obey, to apply the Bible in our life. One of the things God has done for us is he has given us his Holy Spirit to help us as we study the word of God to illuminate its meaning, to couple it with our experience and to apply it in our life. Now, I want you to just consider for a minute just how encouraging that should be. It's amazing in and of itself that God has revealed himself to us in the inspired word of God. He has made himself known. But then, with this doctrine of illumination, God took it a step further. Not only has he made himself known, but he's working in your mind and in your heart to help you understand what he has made known. See, one of the things God desires is that you, those of you he he saved and and redeemed, he wants you to not only uh, know that he has revealed himself, but he wants you to understand what he's revealed about himself. This doctrine of illumination is really a highly relational term. God works in us to help, help us understand what he's revealed. Okay, back to the Dallas Cowboys. I promise I'm not going to do this all morning. But um, remember when Tony Romo retired and he immediately got hired as a sports analyst, color commentator for CBS Sports. And I remember the first time I watched a football game that Tony Romo was providing the color commentary for. It was a whole new experience. Um, if you can think back, if you're a football fan, when, when, when Tony Romo is explaining what's happening on the field, it was a truly illuminating experience in that he was explaining what was about to happen. Like he could look at the setup of the offense and defense and know exactly what run play they were going to do or what pass play they were going to do. And so watching and hearing Tony Romo explain what was happening on the field took my understanding to an entirely new level of football. And again, this analogy breaks down to a certain point. Um, but because Tony Romo's not inspired, he's not divine, he's not truly in a divine way illuminating our minds to football. But in a similar way, okay, metaphorically speaking, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. God has given us his game plan. He's given us his word. And by his grace, he's also given us the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in us to help us truly understand and comprehend and apply, live out the very word that he has revealed to us. That's the doctrine of illumination. The third word that I want to consider as we take a second look at this high priestly prayer in John 17 is this doctrine of redemption. And as I read verses 9 and 10 for you, what I'd like you to do is just take note of Jesus' words given. Given me, yours, and mine. Notice verses 9 and 10, Jesus continues in his prayer to God the Father. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. Again, I want you to notice the possessive words that Jesus uses here, yours and mine. It reminds me of a great quote by a man named Abraham Kuyper who once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine, mine. And I find a tremendous amount of comfort here in Jesus' words when he says they're mine. You, Grace Bible Church, are his. This all has to do with the doctrine of redemption. Redemption is simply the act of purchasing and setting free. And Jesus on the cross purchased us and set us free. He set us free from our slavery to sin. We were purchased by his blood. And we were purchased to a life of freedom, of living in Christ and living for him. We've been redeemed. As we think about this doctrine of redemption, let's forget about the Dallas Cowboys for a minute and be serious. I want you to understand that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you don't belong to yourself. To put it in context of John chapter 17, you don't belong to this fallen world. You don't belong to Satan, but you belong to God. Paul tells us very powerfully in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I told you last week that it's amazing to me, moments, hours before the cross, Jesus prays this prayer and he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, but he also prays with you and me in his mind and in his heart. And he knows that what lay before him was uh, ultimately paying the price for our redemption. He purchased you with his blood, with his death. And so Paul makes the logical conclusion. Therefore, glorify him with your bodies. Glorify him in how you live. The fourth doctrine I want to look at here in John 17 is the doctrine of preservation. Or another phrase is eternal security. And as I read for you verses 11 through 16, I want you to take note of the words keep, keeping, guarded. John chapter 17, notice verse 11, Jesus continuing in his prayer says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, speaking of his disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here we see in 
the repetition of these words, keep, keeping, guarded. We see this idea of preservation or eternal security. Eternal security simply is the work of God by which he guarantees that the gift of salvation is forever and cannot be lost. The doctrine of eternal security emphasizes God's activity of guaranteeing the eternal possession of the gift of eternal life. And notice again here in Jesus' words, he says that he guarded his disciples. He protected them. He preserved them as he has been in the world with them. And now that he's leaving them in the world as he departs, he's praying that God the Father would preserve them and protect them in the world. This world that will hate them. This world that church history will tell us ultimately killed most of these men. Many of these men died because of their faith, because of their proclamation of the good news. And yet, Jesus here prays for their, not safety, but for their preservation. Listen, as you think about it, if this world is all that there is, if this world is all that, we, all that there is, then it makes sense for us to do everything we can to make our life easy and comfortable and fun. But if we believe that this world is not all that there is, and in fact, the real world is yet to come, and if we believe that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, if we believe that we are saved and we are secure in our salvation because of Jesus, and we, just like the disciples, can endure physical hardship and even persecution. Because in 10,000 years, what difference is it really going to matter? The disciples of the first century, as well as you and I and Christians all over the world today, should live with confidence in the promise of God that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. The fifth doctrine I want you to see here in this high priestly prayer of Jesus is our sanctification. Now remember, justification is the saving act of God by which he declares us righteous. Sanctification is the saving act of God in which he progressively makes us more and more righteous. And I want you to notice the repetition of the word sanctify in verses 17 and 9 through 19. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. So again, sanctification, this idea of sanctification, or the word sanctify here, simply means to be set apart. And in the context of John chapter 17, I want you to notice in the words of Jesus here, once again, he's telling his disciples or he's, he's communicating the idea that he's leaving his disciples in the world. And leaving them in the world, he's praying that they would be sanctified apart from the world, that they would be distinct from the world, that they, their lifestyle would not be in line with the fallen world, but it would be set apart unto him. Again, sanctification is this act of God by which he progressively makes us more and more like his son. Where he makes us more and more free from the sin in our life. 
and he makes us more and more like Christ in our actual lives. So as we think about this prayer of Jesus and asking God to sanctify us, to work in us his holiness, to be not like the world, but to be more like our Savior. I think a question of application for all of us, we could ask, as I look at my life, do I look more like the fallen world or do I look more like the risen Savior? And that's really a simple question of our sanctification. As we think about Jesus praying for his disciples to be sanctified in the world, we come then to the sixth term, mission. We've seen over and over again in the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus is leaving his disciples in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. And so as we look at verses 20 through 23, I want you to take note of the repeated phrase, so that the world. So that the world. Notice John chapter 17 starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that, the wor- that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Jesus, as he knows, he's hours away from his death, knowing that eventually he will ascend back into heaven, that he's going to leave his disciples in this world. He doesn't want them to be of the world, that's sanctification, but he wants them to remain in the world on mission with a purpose so that the world might know. This is our mission. The word mission, by the way, simply refers to the biblical assignment that God has given to his people. The biblical assignment, the task that we have that's been given to us by God. One scholar, David Bosch, says that the Bible is from start to finish a missionary book because God is a missionary God. He sends his messengers and ultimately he sent his son as agents in this story of salvation. And this salvation will ultimately reach out to include persons of every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. Again, one of the things I want you to see here is that the disciples, Jesus leaves them in the world, not to be of the world, but to remain in the world, to be on mission for the world, so that the world might know. So that the world might know that he was sent by God, so that the world might know and believe who Jesus is. Now, how? Jesus has given his disciples this mission. He's given to us this mission of remaining in the world, a world that will hate us, to be on mission to reveal to the world who God is. How do we do that? 
Once again this week, I I listened back to a few lectures that I had recorded from Dr. Pentecost, and I really liked how Dr. Pentecost explained it. He said, listen, when we think about the mission that God has given us to, to reveal who the Father is, to make him known in this fallen world, the way we fulfill this mission, Dr. Pentecost said, he said, first of all, you can't improve upon what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? When he was sent on mission to reveal the Father, he did so through his words and through his works. He revealed the Father through his words and through his works. As he preached, as he proclaimed the gospel, as he told people and communicated to people who God is, and as he did amazing things in the name of God. Jesus revealed the Father, who the Father really is through his words and through his works. And Dr. Pentecost said, listen, you and I can improve upon that. That should be our method as well. We reveal the love of God to the world through our words and through our works. As we share the gospel, as we communicate to people who God is and just how much he loves them, and as we walk in the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for us to walk in, we too, just like Jesus, modeling after Jesus, are to be on mission and reveal who God is to a fallen and broken world through our words and through our works. And that's how we follow Jesus in a fallen world. And we're to do this until the Lord calls us home. And that then brings us to our final term, number seven on your outline, this term glorification. As I read for you once again, verses 24 through 26, I want you to take note of the word glory and the phrase Jesus says, be with me, with me. John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26, Jesus concludes his prayer by saying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Once again, I want you to take note of the phrase there in verse 24. Jesus prays that we would be with him where he is that we would see his glory. To remind you, when we think about God's saving activity in our behalf, salvation, justification is the act by which God has already declared us righteous. Sanctification is the work of God by which he's working in us, making us more and more righteous, more and more holy in his sight in our practice and in our conduct. But this last stage of salvation, which we see here, glorification, looks forward to the day when God will ultimately save us even from the very presence of sin, when we will be made perfectly transformed into the image and likeness of our Savior. This is what theologians talk about when they refer to this word glorification. I like what German scholar Jürgen Moltmann says in his book on the Christian hope, he finds in this the promise and expectation that one day mankind will attain to what it was truly meant to be. 
Glorification is about one day in the future, God making us into the people we were truly meant to be before we messed this whole thing up, before we fell into sin, before we walked away from him, before we rejected him, before we had in us the sinful nature to be the human beings that he intended us to be. Glorification is the promise of God that one day you will be the human he created you to be for all eternity. So this is John, 17, uh, John chapter 17, a theological look at John chapter 17. Again, this is an amazing prayer where Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays ultimately for believers of all time. And then in this amazing passage, we see this idea that God has saved us, that he has sent his spirit to illuminate our minds, that he has redeemed us, he will preserve us, sanctify us, he's put us on mission, and one day he will ultimately glorify us to be with him in his presence forever and ever. There's a lot in this passage. I have a few thoughts for you as we conclude our study of John chapter 17. Just three kind of applicational thoughts for you this morning. Number one, and this is not really an application of the text, but it's more a lesson of Bible study. I hope that as you study your Bible, you find yourself in the habit of taking a second look a third look, a fourth look. Because one of the amazing truths about Scripture is that there is more to see there than we originally see. And we're reminded even here in these verses that God has sent us us his Spirit to illuminate our minds, to bring forth the truth of his Scripture. And so my hope for you, my application for you, is that in your own study of the Word of God, I want to encourage you to keep reading, to keep studying, to go deeper. There's more there than you originally see, I promise. The second thought I have for you here is that as you look at John chapter 17 and as you see it now through the eyes of perhaps a theologian, I do want you to keep in mind that ultimately this is a prayer. That in the moments before the cross, Jesus prayed for his own glorification. He prayed for his 11, and he prayed for all of us. He prayed for you and for me. What I want you to see here is we're reminded that at the end of the day, this is a prayer. It's not a theological textbook. Jesus loves you. He prayed for you. He had you in mind when he prayed this. And that then brings me to the third and probably the most important point or application for this morning is that as you look at this list of terms, Salvation, illumination, redemption, preservation, sanctification, mission, glorification. All of this and more is yours as a gift to you because of what Jesus did on your behalf. I don't want you to miss that. These terms are more than just terms to define and write down on a piece of paper. But this is doctrine, this is theology to believe. That Jesus, when he laid down his life for you on the cross, when he was resurrected to life, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, he did all of this and more as a gift to you. And this morning, as you look at this list, if there's anything on here and you think, you know, I'm not sure I believe it. 
I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation this morning to, to put your faith, to put your trust in the work of Christ on your behalf and to believe that all of this and more is yours. That as a child of God, you're saved. As a child of God, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working to illuminate your mind to understand more of who God is. I want you to believe that you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, uh, that you're preserved, you're protected eternally, no matter what happens in this world. I want you to believe and understand that God is actively working in your heart and in your life to make you more and more like Christ in your sanctification. I want you to understand and believe that God has you here for a reason. He has you here on mission to represent him in this fallen world. And I want you to understand and believe that one day we're going to see the Lord face to face and we will be like him. And that's our glorification. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. So this concludes our study of the Upper Room Discourse and of John chapter 17. Uh, maybe if the Cowboys beat the 49ers again, we'll do a third round, um, uh, but I can't make that promise. Um, but um, these are our marching orders. Uh, we're now at the end of part one in this three-part series of following Jesus in a fallen world, the Upper Room Discourse. This is our marching orders. This is what we're to do as we follow Jesus in a fallen world. In a few weeks, we're gonna look at part two of this series of following Jesus in a fallen world, and we're gonna talk a lot about the idea of repentance as we go through a study of the book of Lamentations, because if we're gonna follow Jesus in a fallen world, we need to make sure that we're actually following Jesus and representing him. And then the third and final part of our series, which will take us through 2023, is uh, we're gonna go through the Gospel of Mark and see what it is to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And Mark likes to use this phrase, on the way, on the way, on the way. On the way of discipleship, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a fallen world? So there's lots more to come. But for now, would you bow your heads with me? And uh, let's pray. Fathers, we really do take a step back. We are incredibly grateful that not only have you made yourself known to us, but you have sent your spirit to illuminate our hearts and illuminate our minds to help us to understand what you have revealed, to live it out in our life. And God, I really do ask and pray that for myself and for all of us here this morning, as we take another look here at John chapter 17, that your spirit would work in us to really come to a greater understanding of what it is that Jesus did on the cross for us that because of Jesus, we're saved, that because of your spirit who he sent to us, our minds are open to understand that we've been redeemed, that we are preserved and protected, that we're sanctified, set apart, we're on mission, and ultimately we'll be glorified. God, help us to believe these truths and help us to put them into practice, to live as we follow Jesus in this fallen world. I ask this for myself, for everybody here, for those watching online. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.